Suburban Folk is now live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just download the Podbean app and search for Suburban Folk or visit suburbanfolk.podbean.com for the latest topic and login information. We'll talk about what I learned from our most recent episode, give previews of episodes to come, chat with our audience, and answer any questions they may have. We're grateful for all of our listeners that tune in and are excited to share the show to a larger audience. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on your favorite podcast platform is a big help, and be sure to share with your friends as well. For those looking to support us even further, a donation button has been added to our website at suburbanfolk.com. All money received will be 100% redirected into advertising and getting the word out about the show. Now sit back and enjoy this episode. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and entertainment. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm looking forward to having some real talk with some real folks. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. This is Greg. Today, my guest is John Crepezzi. John, how are you doing? I am pretty good. Thank you. I came across you on the Parallel Passion Podcast. We actually had Miha on an episode recently. And what struck me for your guys' conversation is the focus on... DIY and all of the different projects you seem to get into up into including, if I'm not mistaken, your kids' science experiments and other projects that sounded super overblown that I might have you tell the same story <laughs> that you told on that episode, um, among other things. Yeah, I'm happy to. That sounds awesome. So since I came across you on Parallel Passions, and for those that have not listened to that podcast, the idea is for people that are coders, developers in the tech world to highlight the other interests that they have. So let's real quickly start there for you. Um, what is your day job? So my day job, I am a staff software engineer at GitHub. Uh, I don't know how, how familiar people are with GitHub or how far into that I should go, but GitHub is a, a code hosting platform. Uh, that a lot of companies use to host their code and collaborate on their code together. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with it as far as being, is it an open form or open source platform? The, so a big part of what GitHub does is it supports open source software, mm -hmm. um, which we can also talk about that if you're interested, but uh, open source software, uh, and then also businesses pay GitHub to be able to host and collaborate internally on their code. So there's private code and public code. Well, here was a question sort of putting a couple concepts together that I had around the tech piece and later on what we're going to get to for DIY. Do you feel like people that get into the IT side of any given business uh, correlates to things like home projects um, or are there any other dare I say, stereotypes that come along with uh, people that you tend to interact with on the technical side of things. It's funny you should say that because for a long time, I've, I've thought definitely that people are crossing over DIY. I know for a long time, there was a connection between things like, for example, math and music connect pretty well. Um, I've also noticed, I think we're probably going to talk about rock climbing at some point in this. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've also noticed that a lot of people that are rock climbing tend to be uh, the puzzle sort, you know, like it leaning technical, not necessarily in an IT background, but definitely in a, uh, a job that requires them to like problem solve. And that connects very strongly to like what rock climbing is at its core. Well, funny you mentioned that with problem solving and math. One of the reasons I put rock climbing on my list is because my son is five and, you know, pretty young for figuring out what he wants to do activities wise. But we somewhat randomly tried rock climbing and he took to it. And uh, he also very young uh, was into puzzles 
super into Legos. Maybe that does explain why rock climbing out of the gate was something that he was mm-hmm. interested in because it's that same side of the brain that that people use. Yeah, I often say in rock climbing, they call uh, they call when you're climbing, they call them problems, right? So you're walking, you're going up the wall, uh, and you're solving these problems. And even they, like in their verbiage and, and nounage, like acknowledge that these are problems on the wall that you have to work through. So picking one of the other items that you mentioned that go together and with problem solving puzzles uh, was music. And I have played music since uh, middle school and up through college. And my understanding, similar for yourself, sounds like maybe even similar types of bands that you played in, like punk rock bands. Can you talk a little bit about your drumming and um, and what you uh, what types of bands you played in? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I started when I when I was very young, I guess when when they give you an instrument, I chose the trombone. Uh, I wanted to pick the drums, but I wasn't allowed to pick the drums because my parents didn't like the noise. So they pushed me in the direction of trombone, which like, I don't know if they understood that that's also super loud, but we did that. We did trombone uh, and trombone is an awesome instrument, but I uh, really still wanted to play the drums. And then my parents um, were divorced. So at, at one Christmas, my dad decided to get me uh, a drum set to have at his house. So we had it upstairs and I would go to his house on the weekends and I'd play this drum set. And I remember sitting down at it and like almost being afraid to like to hit them. Mm-hmm. Like, and then uh, my brothers, my older brothers would come in and they would just like go insane on this drum set. Like, and I was like, stop, you're like, you're ruining them. <laughs> you know, that's not what they're for. And then I remember like going to see a band play and like they were playing like my brothers were playing mm-hmm. like obviously they they had skill that my brothers did not have but it was like oh you're supposed to just like you're supposed to hit these things uh so then i started like getting more into the drum set uh and i ended up starting a a punk band i think i started the band probably when i was like i want to say like 10 or 11 we were pretty young we were definitely wow. not real punk you know like we were it wasn't until later that you know we we evolved in that in that sense, but we started playing and we were one of the first groups in our schools to be playing music and we had practice after school. Uh, and we were, we were just like hang out and play. Uh, we ended up recording a small, uh, EP and then that kind of went into the next band, the way that bands normally work. I'm sure you can relate to this. is like one band kind of leads into the next band. You find that maybe there's someone that was, uh, in a band that you played with often, and maybe like you are spending more time with them than you're spending with your own band or maybe like you end up having a jam session on the weekends that goes pretty well and then you end up starting something separately even even professional big bands you can see this you can like draw you know lines between if you take rancid uh like came from operation ivy you can draw lines all the way down and like those lines Mm -hmm. are still going now um that's just like how bands evolve so through many many evolutions i was probably in uh 10 different bands throughout the years uh everything ranging from just like playing in our spare time jam band to like recording an album. At one point we shot a, we took a couch to Asbury park beach and put the couch in the water and had like a professional photo shoot on Asbury park beach. So that's like the, I guess the most professional we got. Um, if that is professional, <laughs> so, <laughs> as long as the pictures came out good, it sounds like it they, were, cool. they were, they were amazing. <laughs> and it's like, I would like, Still, I go back and look at the pictures and I'm just like, what were we doing? But they're they're very cool. I was not quite as young uh, as you were starting to play in bands because it was maybe more of the beginning of high school. But um, yeah, there was definitely a, a sense when you rent out like the volunteer fire 
uh, halls and stuff like that, that like who could be the heaviest, who could, um, you know, get, get more people going, even though it was supposed to be a community, there was still a little bit of that competition, I feel like going on. And, uh, it seemed like the heaviest band was the winner. We entered at some point this, this battle. I don't know why I'm telling this story, but I guess this is how it's supposed to go. But we had this, uh, um, we had this battle of the bands and there was this guy in the battle of the bands that he, I was like kind of organizing the whole thing and he was, he was older, um, but he was an amazing bass player. And when we were, when we were playing uh, for some reason, he like really took to me and we, uh, we had like a, um, like we spent more time together and like he kind of, kind of was a mentor as far as the bands go. And still, when I see that guy, like he, he plays in a band now called Shorty Long, which is a cover band that kind of goes up and down the East coast. They're amazing, amazing band. Still, when I go to his concerts, like he'll, he'll like stop what they're doing and he'll be like, John, just like in the middle of playing a song. Uh, so just like the amount of people that you meet and the, like the things that you can do um, in a band, it's just such an amazing experience to like have um, to be connected to these people. I don't know. I, I loved it. And fast forwarding to today, are you still playing music, whether it's in a original punk band or cover band or any other form? I haven't played it probably in the past two years, but it's something that I think about pretty constantly. Uh, and I, I have thought I have a, in my basement, I have a, my full drum set still set up and it's pretty loud, obviously, cause it's a drum set. Um, and so I don't get to play it as much as I want to. And I've been thinking about getting an electric drum set, but one problem there is like, I feel like by getting the drum set, I'm admitting to myself that I'm not going to be playing out anymore that I won't be taking my like real drum set out. So I think that's what's stopping me from like making the final jump. So I, it's like, in one sense, I want to do this so that I can play more, but I know that it, by, by doing that, I'm admitting to myself that like this era of my kind of musical time is over. As a guitar player, I didn't really have those same reservations, but it makes sense for what you're saying. I have the same consideration actually for my amps, right? I still have the half stack and, you know, a couple different heads. And I find myself looking at some of the practice amps like that would be a lot more reasonable and probably even make me pick up my guitars more because it's not such a issue getting everything out and everything set up. But uh, like you said, then you're admitting that, oh, I'm never going to use that equipment that you need to have to go play out somewhere. So <laughs> I'm right there with you. I have a, in my basement also a setup for, I have, I played guitar for a bit and I played bass for a little bit and I have uh, setups for both of those and some mics in the basement. Um, and it's fun now because like sometimes friends come over and we play and that's a good time. And my, I have kids, they like to come down and kind of watch us. Remind me the age of your kids and are any of them playing music right now? So I have four kids, which is wild, but uh, it's like wild to think that I've, I've gotten to here. Uh, but it's, uh, they're 10, eight, four and one. Um, and the oldest one has started playing an instrument in school. They made her, uh, they pick an instrument just like I got to pick the trombone. Uh, she wanted to play an instrument. So we actually ended up ha- having her pick the trombone. So she's playing trombone too. And so she's getting really into it. Uh, and we're noticing, you kind of notice very quickly what, a child likes as far as music goes but we're noticing that she really likes to sing so trying to steer things in that direction thinking about getting vocal lessons for her what age was she when you first started exploring the instruments probably about a year ago was when we first like started pushing it she took piano lessons briefly uh but they didn't work out so i think like, there's nothing worse than like having a kid that wants to do something like piano lessons and then it's it's not something that they're they like and you force them to do it uh i think a lot of parents do that and it probably drives kids away from music 
Yeah. And speaking of things that I have to force myself to do, <laughs> let's get into some of the, the DIY projects. Uh, um, like I said, this is something that I've wanted to get some uh, episodes in on and folks that really enjoy doing certain house projects, how you go about it, what your experience has been I like to complete a project. In the, I'm the type that when I start it, I'm ready to go um, in the middle of it, you know, as issues inevitably come up, start wondering why did I take this on? But then once it's over, um, I feel good about it again and, you know, sort of gives me enough energy to go on to the next one. So I thought to maybe get a basis for us, can you tell me um, what type of home you currently live in, maybe even a little bit of history of maybe prior homes that you've lived in and where you got your basis for home DIY projects? Yeah, I'd love to. So I, we lived in um, Northern New Jersey when I, when I left college and that's when my wife and I um, got together. And then we, we moved over to Northern New Jersey, a different part of Northern New Jersey uh, near Montclair for those that are familiar with the area. And we bought a house there Um and when we bought that house, I knew nothing about DIY anything. I knew nothing about um, about fixing homes other than what I had learned from my grandfather growing up, which was, I guess, like a fair amount. But he never, he wasn't letting me do the projects. Like he was doing them and I was kind of helping. So you, when you're there by yourself all of a sudden and you're like buying your first drill, it's a lot more intimidating than when your grandfather like brings all of his tools and is ready to have you work with him. Um, so you know some basics, you know things like, you turn a screw to the right and it gets tighter, but maybe you don't know like how to start if you want to replace a door. Um, so we didn't go very far in that house because the house, even though it was built in like 1920, um, was pretty sturdy. You know, like it's funny when you're in a house, maybe your first house, you you see all of these problems uh, that you have and you think like, oh, I wish I had more space or I wish I had um you know, maybe within the first year, I think that we had a leak in the basement and we had to get it fixed and it was pretty cheap to get it fixed. Um, and it's not until after you leave a house that you typically can look back and say like, you know, that like that house was pretty good. Like that house was pretty sturdy. Uh, the floors didn't creak when we walked around. And anyway, this house was built in 1920 and it was it was very sturdy for what it was. Um, so then we left there and we moved to Brooklyn. And when we moved to Brooklyn, uh, we couldn't afford to buy a place for obvious reasons, because Brooklyn's expensive. So we rented right. in Brooklyn. Um, and then at one point while we were in Brooklyn, our uh, landlords decided that they were going to sell our apartment. And we had not signed a lease. Uh, so we had signed a lease, but the lease had expired. And we thought like, oh, this is great. Like we, we don't have a lease anymore. So we could, we're just going month to month and we, we have the power here. But actually what that meant is that when they want to sell the place that we basically have no, no say in it. Mm-hmm. So then we ended up looking for a house kind of on a rush. And rather than look in Brooklyn, we ended up looking in New Jersey again. We found a house in Monmouth County. It is a single family house. Um, We have, like I said, four kids. So we have a five bedroom house. Uh, We have one guest room, two kids share a room, and then we have a a master bedroom. It is on 1.2 acres of land. And uh, I guess that's pretty much it. Yeah, it was built in 1972. I don't think I mentioned that. Oh, and it's and it's built on a land that has every house has septic and well. Uh, so I think a lot of people don't expect that for New Jersey, but that um, has been interesting. Yeah, I might have to have you 
expand upon septic and well because actually in our home search, uh, which was about four years ago, the neighborhood that we really liked most of the homes were septic and well. It just so happened now we did not end up in this house, but the one we really liked was one of like five maybe in the neighborhood that was not. It was all on the city sewer. Um, but I know there are specific considerations um, having to to deal with that. Have you had to, just sticking with the DIY, have you had to deal with anything yourself or just having people come out? Uh, I refuse to DIY on the on the septic stuff. So we, we ended up getting a replacement septic system. When we first moved in, uh, the house was, everything passed an inspection, inspection, but the septic system failed the septic inspection. And so we actually used that to get some like leverage to get some uh, amount off the house, which was great. And then the septic system, instead of failing, was fine for like a couple of years. And then we had some extra uh, money um, that we knew we would have to do this like pretty soon. And we didn't want a septic. It's the kind of thing, as you'd probably imagine, that if you like leave it being a problem, it's just going to be more of a problem. So we had it replaced recently. Um, obviously, I, if you read online about I did read about like septic DIY to see like what that would in- involve. Um, it's, it's a lot of work. So, I mean, even seeing them come, they dug like, like a 15 foot deep hole. Cause we're on a, a hill. So they, they dug like a 15 foot deep hole and filled it with sand. It's just like probably out of the realm of at least my DIY. So 1972, this is kind of a guess as far as what you would potentially be dealing with. I'm thinking maybe not grounded for electrical that would be a consideration. At that point, you're into drywall. You're not having to deal with like plaster or anything like that. When you think of 70s houses, there's certain layouts that come to mind. I don't know. Well, what kind of layout are you dealing with? So we have a, a center hall colonial um, is what it is. And it was the it was actually built by – his name is Zimmer. He was like, a, I guess, a master builder in Monmouth County. Uh, people still like look for – the houses made by this guy because they were apparently very well built, which I think, I don't know, I guess I, I haven't, I haven't left the house to be able to reflect on how good the house is yet. But I, I do think like it's pretty well built for what it is. I think like the seventies is and the eighties even more so are typically like an area where construction practices kind of like were not as great as they had been previously. So um, I think we got we got lucky to find a house that was built in that era that was built correctly. In the floor plan, I'm imagining is probably a pretty classic floor plan. For example, what, what I was going to say for 70s is like split levels can come to mind, and you know that that can definitely cause problems depending on what people are looking for with their floor plan. So at least you're not dealing with that out of the gate, like I don't know, moving walls or whatever you could even do there. Yeah, it's a pretty classic floor plan. If you imagine a house, uh, a typical house with like a uh, a, cen- a typical center hall colonial with like a front door, there's essentially like two windows on the bottom level and then three across the top. It's like that, but like a little bit wider than a normal one. So in inside of that, there's like a living room, uh, dining room, den and kitchen, all like four corners of the house. And then upstairs is all the bedrooms. You mentioned, which I also totally agree that there is a difference between having your grandfather or father or somebody walking you through a needed house improvement versus you're on your own, both tools as well as potentially knowledge. Where did you start from ground zero and then build up your knowledge? Um, And then, yeah, like you said, we'll get into tools. I I did small things growing up. So at one point I wanted a a skim board 
And so I made a skim board. Uh, and it wasn't very good, but it was like something that I could look at and say, like, I made that. Um, but the first time that I was doing something for home, I remember I wanted to build a sandbox. Um, so I had to go build a sandbox and I didn't have a circular saw. So I went and got a bunch of wood and I, I brought the wood home. And I remember looking at the wood and just being like, well, this is not the right size. <laughs> you know, like I, I got a bunch of like two by sixes and I was like, well, this is not, you can't build the sandbox with like just this size wood. Um, so I was like, okay, I remember like the way you have to cut a two by or a two by six is with a circular saw. So I went back to the store and I bought a circular saw and a drill and I still have them actually. Those, those ones that I bought, cause they're, they're pretty good. Came home and you cut up the wood for the, the outside of the thing. And I wanted to have a cover on it as well. So I bought some, some plywood and was cutting that with the circular saw. But I always like, I, I said this on the other podcasts or on parallel passions as well, but the, um, I think that the first time that you take something like a, a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw, that's like a superpower. I mean, it's a superpower, even if you did it with a handsaw, your ability to take this thing that was one size and turn it into another size. And then if you like want to fasten those four things together, that's another sur- superpower is you can now drill a hole that you can put a screw in to take two boards and fasten them together. And that's that idea carries itself all the way through all of the other things that we're going to talk about here. It's just like a series of looking at something and being like, how do I do this? And then doing some research and finding out that there's some superpower that you can obtain either a new skill set or a new tool to do the thing that you want to do. And sometimes eventually you'll realize um, you'll want to do a particular project and you'll look at all the superpowers in your arsenal and you'll be like, wow, I have everything I need to build this thing already. And then you just build it. And like, that is an amazing feeling. It's an amazing feeling to get to the point where you're not learning something new or buying something new to build something that you have in your mind. Um, so I built that, that playpen uh, with the top. Uh, you have to have the top to keep the cats out. And then that kind of like got me started. Then I took a break from it for a while while we moved away. And it wasn't until we got this new house that things really took off because um, finally I had a two-car garage that I could start uh, filling with things. And at the same time, my grandfather got pretty sick and uh, was getting rid of all of the tools that he had. So we moved. Uh, I got this two-car garage. I brought the couple tools that I had. And then I was able to bring the kind of full collection of tools that my grandfather had uh, where he said um, his, my whole life, he had said like, Oh, someday, like you're going to have a lot of stuff to dig through. And like, he was right. There's, there's just so much stuff. Um, Not even tools, but he kept like, like there are just like buckets of bolts. Like you would see maybe at your grandfather's house, you know, like there's just like a bucket of bolts and a bucket of washers and like, sorting through that and trying to figure out like what here is good. What do we keep? Um, how can we organize these things so that they're able to be used um, was, was a process, but definitely worth it. Cause now I have a shop that is like ready for me to build anything that I need to build. And obviously it's expanded in a million different ways since then. So it's been about maybe three and a half years since I started like formally building out this shop. Oh, cool. So you're using the garage like, exclusively for a workplace, like I assume a bench and all of your tools. Yeah. Cars don't go my, yeah, it's, it's fully a workspace at this point. Um, and that's because we well, I'm sure we'll talk about the projects, but it's because the, the things that I've started building have uh, become a lot bigger and the DIY projects that I have are a lot bigger. I think your amount of tools and your amount of ability to process things has to grow with the size of the house. Cause obviously like 
house is a lot larger now, so there are a lot of more things that fail. Yeah, we, we, I've definitely dealt with the same. A quick anecdote uh, to go along with what you're mentioning for inherited tools. And if you get them from, again, grandfather, father, whoever, um, my father-in-law has tons and tons of tools and he can't use uh, at this point. And I had to replace a kitchen sink uh, and everything was just rusted and so on underneath the sink. And he had every wrench possible, <laughs> luckily for me, because I only have maybe a couple of vice grips, a very standard wrench set, and all sort of a standard length. He happened to have these real stubby ones that would fit right up where you needed underneath the sink and made the job way, way easier than if I just had what I had amassed up to that point. And that was actually just, uh, I don't know, maybe a month to a month and a half ago. Um, so it is nice when you can get some of those extra things. I'm curious though, do you have any rules of thumb for when you need to get a new tool that may be just a little better for the job that you're doing versus looking at what you already have and something that might get you by? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, my general rule of thumb is that if there's the right tool for the job and I don't have it, that I, I go pick it up, um, and I add it to, to my arsenal. And like, I will use that thing, uh, in the future. Like one example recently to, to talk about a sink actually is behind the sink, you have up near where the faucets are. You need to be able to get the, um, the nut that kind of retains the individual handles. If you have individual handles, mm -hmm. um, on, and there's a particular tool to do that. There's a tool that is a wrench that, um, can kind of flip to the side so that you can twist it from the bottom. And typically they can extend uh, and you can twist it from the bottom and not have to try to get like a wrench up in that tiny little space up near the sink. So I didn't have one of those. It is so, so, so frustrating to do it without that tool. And then you put the tool in there, it costs $20 and it is so easy to do. And you can get it tighter. Like you can probably a lot of the reason that there was rust under your sink is because there was a minor leak going through. Um, or someone didn't use like plumber's putty underneath the, the faucet handles. So like that's even more reason to make sure that you have the right tool to be able to get it down to the right um, the right torque or whatever. I've also noticed that my grandfather had a lot of, so a lot of his tools were or are focused toward a particular use, right? Because his tools are going to be kind of based on what he was doing. So my grandfather was a garage door repairman, which is a pretty good general use tool thing, mm -hmm. but then was very into boats, so there are a lot of tools that he had that are for working on engines or are for like pulling spark plugs that I don't have a use for. So what I've done with those, I think a lot of people would either throw them away or more likely would put them in, all in their tool chest and like let them take up all the space. And that's what I did for a long time is I just had like this really overflowing tool chest um, full of tools that I didn't really know what they did. And just recently I went and I took everything in my tool chest and anything that I didn't have an immediate use for. I put into a second tool chest in the basement. So there's a tool chest down there of like all the tools that I'm not using at this time, or I have some kind of like weird sentimental attachment to. And then in the garage, I have just the things that I'm, I'm ready to use. Uh, or if I have duplicates of something, I'll also put that in the basement. So if I need something that I don't have, I just go down there and get it. And I kind of am letting the tools in the basement kind of build the tools at hand so that the tools that I have in the garage are a reflection of what I'm actually using instead of a reflection of what he was using. And you can almost compare it to what you hear about wardrobes, right? <laughs> if you put everything to one side of the closet and then when you 
put on one of the outfits, then you move it over to the other side and whatever never moved after a month, maybe is something you just need to get rid of, or like you said, put it elsewhere so that it's not cluttering up the stuff that you are using on a regular basis. But, but to think that like every tool that you had was like, like that, that he had everything or that every tool that he had was the perfect version. Like I could force myself to use, for example, like his hammer, but probably a, a modern hammer is going to give me like better impact and is probably worth having like a, a fiberglass handled hammer. Um, so I, I keep the tools when they make sense, but then if there's like a better modern equivalent, I will get that. Uh, and it's also like a lot of people say like my grandfather didn't have a lot of tools or he didn't have a lot to give me or I didn't get the thing. A lot of times what I'm also doing is I'm going to things like garage sales and trying to like buy out boxes of tools and sorting through them to figure out what is right and wrong. Uh, sometimes those things are rusted. So then sometimes you get to do a little bit of like a rescue on the tool, which typically just involves putting it into like a bath of a solution, like a VAPA rust to get it clean and then cleaning it up a little bit. But there's a lot of tools out there that you can get for really cheap. That is an interesting point. I don't know that I've ever looked for tools at a garage sale, but it would make sense. Do you typically get uh, like hand tools or do you have you even picked up like electric like saws or some things like that i mostly go for hand tools at garage sales um i guess a lot of the the saws and things that you'll find where have either been like badly mistreated or were the budget version of what they were and i think on electrical tools in particular uh safety has come a long way recently and also you unless you know a lot about how these electrical tools are put together. For example, I bought I bought a table saw when I was first getting started. I went and purchased a table saw on Craigslist. Now, I could have just started using it. I think actually the first day I did cut a little bit of stuff on it. Um, but it became apparent pretty quickly that like the table saw had been kind of like cobbled back together by a couple different previous owners. That's fine if you know them and you can trust that the table saw was safe. But it's also scary to imagine that like there might be a bolt that's supposed to be holding on the arbor that's not like fully tightened down. Like that could become a really dangerous situation. So what I ended up doing was taking the table saw fully apart into its pieces, cleaning all the different pieces and then reassembling it uh, using a copy of the manual from when the saw was first made. So I knew that the saw was put back together exactly how it was supposed to, meaning like every bolt had its like lock washers on and make sure that it's not going to just like throw a saw blade at me, which I definitely don't need. Yeah, I don't need a saw blade <laughs> I, in the face. So I think like electrical <laughs> tools are are a little bit scarier because like there is a power there that is not just your own hand. So you just really have to be careful when you're taking an electrical tool. Going back to what you mentioned of the superpower, uh, and that is correct. You've by extension making yourself able to do things that of course you couldn't do on your own. I, even with a circular saw, I can definitely get butterflies, you know, when I'm getting ready to make that cut for all the reasons you mentioned, uh, that is a really good point that it's even a heightened level of being cautious. If somebody has done something to the tool that you don't know about, but even the regular tools themselves, like you mentioned, maybe budget versions of some of these tools, may have plastic pieces that could fail or things like that. Emphasis on uh, safety, certainly, <laughs> when when using saws, drills, all of that kind of stuff. My grandfather's collection of tools, one of the kind of few electric tools that existed in it was he had a, um, I guess, a handheld router. Yeah, so a router is, think of it like a drill, um, but a drill that spins more faster than a normal drill. Um, and on the end of the drill, there's a bit that has a certain profile on it. So instead of just being like an up and down, uh, like drill bit, 
it is maybe uh, a round over or like the, like you would see on the edge of a tabletop or a, a chamfer, which is like a 45 degree, um, like a bevel that you would put against the piece. Um, and when you, what you do is you bring it up against the edge of a piece and you move the router and it spins super fast and it cuts that profile into the edge of the wood that you're working with. So he had a router um, and this router was a, an old craftsman router and perfectly fine router, but it had a problem where the engine would get hot and then when the engine, or sorry, the motor got hot, it would loosen its grip on the bit. So the bit would start sliding down. And what's what's annoying about that uh, to like intro learning what a router is, John, is that you're cutting something into a piece of wood and then you step back from it and you realize that the the cut that it's making is vertically going down as you move through the piece. So that's like, that's my immediate reaction is just like, I want to throw this tool in the garbage. Like, cause it's just, it's not doing the one thing that it's designed to do. But then years later, John, looking back at that is like, wow, that was probably really dangerous because if the bit fell far enough, it was going to fly out of the tool at 15,000 RPM, which is not great. It's like, so you don't want to put yourself in a situation where kind of your lack of knowledge about a tool um, causes it to be dangerous. So definitely just like, you know, research things a little bit beforehand. And I would say if you're looking at an electrical tool, um, have someone that knows what they're doing with that tool. If it's a new tool to you, take a look at it before you start using it. And you mentioned uh, whether or not folks know what a router is, maybe even stepping back even further from that, you said your first couple of purchases were a circular saw and a drill, which I would certainly agree are essential to any starting toolkit if you were in front of somebody that didn't have anything, was starting from scratch, what would be the first five or six, let's say, things you'd say you have to have these? Yeah, I think uh, someone just starting probably would benefit by having a jigsaw as well. So a jigsaw, um, I guess for those of you that, that don't know, a jigsaw is a blade uh, that comes off of a tool that is you hold in your hand that the blade goes up and down kind of like rapidly. And you can cut but the benefit of it is that you can cut odd shapes into a piece of wood. So if you need to cut something like a curve, you can cut that with a jigsaw. You can't cut a curve easily with a circular saw because of the kind of the, the length of the blade. So as soon as you start to turn, what's going to happen, and you'll, you think about this a lot in woodworking, is that the back of the blade will make contact and bind with a piece of wood, which could result in a, a kickback situation um, that could be pretty dangerous to the person holding the saw. So... Um, a jigsaw does not have that problem because the blade goes up and down instead of uh, instead of rotating, um, and because the blade is is tiny instead of you know six inches wide into the wood. Um, so a jigsaw, a drill. Um, I would say definitely get some clamps, um, and probably like a, a good maybe rafter square or similar. Um, a lot of the circular saw, like a lot of tools, becomes a lot more useful once you pair it with some, with tools like a like a square. Um, a circular saw by its own is kind of trusting the the user to be able to like guide it straight. Um, but things like a square, you can hold with one hand and then run the circular saw next to them, allow you to create a perfect 90 degree cut to like the reference circle just by running the circular saw along the, uh, along the square. Similar with clamps. Like if you want to cut like a long strip out of a piece of wood, you can uh, you can clamp something like a two by four to the piece that you want to cut and then run your circular saw against that. That's how you get straight cuts with the circular saw. A lot of people think like you just have to be good with it. Um, but kind of the more you get into woodworking and DIY, you realize that um, a lot of 
being good with tools is actually just having proper setup, not necessarily like being good at using them. Do you have a certain size square that you would recommend for the first one somebody gets? Yeah, I think a six inch square is, is pretty typical. You can go a little bit bigger, a six or nine inch square um, are pretty good for like for home use. Going back to the quality of a particular tool, we don't necessarily have to name brands. You can if you want to, but um, it, do you go with maybe not quite the most expensive thing in a particular category, but certainly don't get you know the lowest end, or do you try to go for the the most expensive or quality thing you can buy? For a while, I I was on the I guess not lower end, but the middle end. So am I allowed to name a brand? Sure. Uh, so for a while, I was into rigid tools because um, they're mm-hmm. they're a pretty good kind of middle ground tool. Um, I've recently been replacing my tools with higher end versions of the originals. Um, a lot of times that is not because I want a better tool, but because I want a uh, a battery powered version of the thing that I have. Um, especially with DIY projects, I find that battery powered tools are really helpful to not have to like carry cords everywhere. Um, I recently got. Uh, another example is like a nail gun, for example, is really annoying because a nail gun has to uh, be hooked up typically to a pneumatic source. So you have to have something like an air compressor hooked up to it. So that means anywhere you want to use a nail gun, if you want to use it on like trim upstairs, you have to bring an air compressor with you. And you can get one of those squat air compressors, but I don't have one of those. I have a I have a taller air compressor. Right. So I was always trying to like lug this thing up the stairs. And recently I got a battery powered nail gun and it's just amazing to be able to like take this nail gun. Uh, anyway, the reason that I ended up with the nice tools is because uh, I don't want to have more than one battery platform. Ideally, I don't want to have like ten different batteries, and I have to figure out which one's the right thing for a tool. Right. So I ended up picking one brand, and I'm just buying all of them. Similar for me, not necessarily as much with those kinds of tools, but with the outdoor tools, I did the same thing. Picked uh, a brand that would have the same batteries. And uh, even for like weed whacking, when I don't need the full on gas trimmer, <laughs> uh, I can get away with a battery power one for, ju- for just regular um, cleanup and the blower that goes with it. I guess in addition to that, I also have some like very large tools. Um, and those large tools, I tend to, uh, to buy, the, I, I tend to wait a very long time and then buy a very nice version of the tool because I've reached like a point where I know that this is my future. Like this is, a big part of um, what I'm going to be doing over the next 10 or 15 years. And um, it's just like, it's worth investing in quality. The difference between my original table saw um, and the table saw I have now is just, it's just infinitely better in every possible way. It's amazing. Are you doing projects for other people or do you mean just for your own use? So I, I do some projects for other people um, and I'm doing some projects for inside my house. uh, And I do projects for just like, weird things that I'm interested in. Um, and I'm also, I'm working on my 2020 resolutions now. So uh, this probably will be out in 2020. Right. Uh, but I'm going to be uh, trying to get some of the work that I'm doing now into like a small museum exhibit in 2020. So kind of starting to build out a portfolio that would head me in that direction. My, my dream is, you know, how there are companies that make interactive displays for, uh, let's say you go to a trade show or something and there's like an interactive display to like, to describe a certain concept or maybe there's like a thing that kids play with that teaches them a certain idea. I want to build um, a side business in making things like that. Uh, I think people typically call it experientials, but it's basically Mm -hmm. 
the idea of someone coming to me and saying like, this is the idea we're trying to get across. Please build us something that illustrates that idea. And I want to just have the kind of freedom to make it. That's where I want to get to. So I'm kind of plotting my course and we're going to get there. That's really cool. Um, I would have no idea where to start with something like that. But uh, <laughs> if, I, if I could look at me a couple of years ago saying this thing now, I would say that I was crazy. Like it, 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 <laughs> it happened. Uh, the way it happened was those superpowers kind of kept evolving. Like I, I kept having one thing and then saying like, oh man, like I, now I can cut iron pipe, but I wish I could thread the end of it. And like, then you end up like buying a pipe threader and like you end up doing all these things to be able to, uh, to make the next piece of what you want. And then eventually you get to something like these coasters that I made the other day where we had this idea for a coaster and uh, we were able to produce fully the coaster like in one day with only things that I had laying around the shop, which is amazing. Uh, and I know coasters are pretty simple, but these coasters, oh, these coasters are great. <laughs> maybe maybe you'll have to send me a picture of it. And uh, when we post our episode, you, we can uh, put it on Instagram. Yeah, I could do that. Um, yeah, because <laughs> I, I'm just thinking through where I would be starting now and I would be completely lost. I guess like anything, like you said, you sort of build on what your experience is and get a little bit further and get a little bit further. And uh, I'm assuming things like YouTube and obviously I'm sure different blogs and so on. Where, where do you get most of your information for new projects that you haven't really tackled a particular piece yet? A lot of my projects these days are inspired by projects that I did previously. I'll have one project that uses a certain component and then... I will, that, that tends to give me an idea for the next thing I want to do. And so I know at least one piece of it. And then I spend the rest of the time kind of looking at it and saying like, well, I need to like move water through this thing quickly. So I need to figure out how pumps work. And then I need to take that pump and I need to be able to hook it up to the Raspberry Pi and like pretty much everything about how the Raspberry Pi and the pump interconnect is, uh, is like fairly straightforward and laid out in like the diagramming that comes with the pump. So like, that's pretty easy. And it's really just like the important part for doing stuff like this is to be able to break down. And this is important in life is being able to break down a problem into like a subset of smaller problems. So you look at something that seems really complicated and instead of looking at the whole thing, just say like, okay, well, I need to build this tube that gets hit by this hammer. So like what will do it correctly? You know, like what, what will that look like? You know? So, and then just figure out one piece of the project, the, the problem. And, and work on just that. And then maybe stepping back again, because the things you're working on are, I would say, pretty advanced and um, you know really remarkable. If somebody is starting out, what type of projects would you say, start with this? So let's say electrical, for example. We talked a little bit about plumbing as far as the sink, or you mentioned uh, trim work uh, for baseboards or something like that. What would be your advice for somebody just getting into a a home project yeah in a home project i think like there's got to be something in your house that annoys you something that you kind of constantly look at uh maybe it's trim that that doesn't quite meet the wall or maybe it's the caulking in your shower is not quite holding together the way that you want it to go find that thing uh and find just that one thing not some large project to like redo a bathroom don't start with that start with just the one thing um and do it yourself and if you do that one thing yourself you're going to start building up this arsenal of tools and you're going to start building up this arsenal of knowledge and also i guarantee even if you don't think you did it well that you probably did it well uh well i just guaranteed so i have to that you will do it better (laughs) than uh than a contractor that you would hire to do it because you're going to hire a contractor and that that contractor is not going to care the way that you do 
Uh, also, you're going to be kind of overly um, cautious about how your work goes. So you're going to be constantly looking at your work and saying, that's not, doesn't look that great. Um, it's not, it's not perfect. There's like, this line is not perfect. Just go to somewhere else in your house where a contractor did some work, look at what they did and find the flaws in their work too. Try to put yourself in the mindset of, um, of everyone's work having flaws and not just your own. Cause I know a lot of times I get in my own mind and I'm like, like, Oh, it's not perfect. I need to get a contractor in here that knows how to do this. But then if I look around at what a contractor did, like they don't care. They just want to get out of there. Contractors don't typically make more money by, by doing a better job, doing a better job is like kind of a, that's an advanced move for a contractor because that's, you have to be thinking far enough ahead that you're thinking by doing a good job, I'm going to get myself more business, but that's not how contractors make more money. The way they make more money is by having faster deal flow. So you will make more money quicker as a contractor having 10 jobs than doing eight jobs. Well, meaning like, you know, a job might give you an extra hundred dollars for spending more time. Um, in that time, you could have just had another job and made more money. So a lot of contractors are in that mindset. That's great advice. I also would second that. I think I came to that conclusion with landscaping um, because you're not typically dealing with anything that has to be too precise. Like, for example, even just something as simple as grass cutting. There's a lot of folks that live near us that hire a service. And I say, you know, I know I'm going to do this better and I'm not going to you know, go behind somebody and grumble that I paid for something that I could have done better myself anyway. And yeah, taking that same concept, like you're saying to the home projects and maybe even marrying that together with some of the other things we're talking about with the tools, even though there are costs associated when you first start doing those projects, getting the tools that they may not be much cheaper than a contractor. Once you have those tools and you don't have to keep ramping up to get them, um, you're going to save even more money than hiring the contractor. Yeah. The cost savings are amazing. I mean, I, now it's at the point where it's like, I, so some contractor gives me a price on maybe doing trim work in my house. It's like for the price that they want to charge me for that trim, if I'm not factoring in my own hourly time, which I don't on DIY projects, then like I could mess this up like eight times, you know, and it would still be cheaper. You know, so get that mindset. And I promise you the first time you do a DIY project, someone's going to come over to your house. They're going to look at it and they're going to say like, oh, that looks great. The contractor did such a good job there. And then you're going to be like, you know what? I did that. And then they're going to freak out and everyone's going to think that you're, you know, like that you're so handy. And like it, it doesn't really even take that much. And it's like, yeah, you, you might mess up. Um, that's a learning opportunity. And then you can do it again because the contractor... Uh, is obviously charging for their time. That's the edge you have. Like it'll always be cheaper for you to um, to do it, uh, and it's just a matter of, uh, like you said, getting past the hurdle of buying the tools that you might need to do it. I also think that if you do run into a project that you just are not comfortable with, and you do need to bring in a contractor, going through the process of any DIY project helps you talk through what the contractor says they're going to be doing. And I hate to say this, but calling them out if something just sounds like they are either A, glossing over it uh, because they don't want to give you the details for whatever reason, um, or B, or even making something more complicated than it really is. Uh, one that comes to mind for me is uh, we have an irrigation system and they said that the one I had was about to stop working like the the main controller and i don't know they had one for like 200 250 you go to home depot and the thing's like 
50 bucks. <laughs> and all you have to do is look at the way the last one was wired, take it off the wall, put the new one in, you know, test it out and you're good to go. Um, so yeah, I think it helps be able to, to call out a, a contractor that's almost intentionally trying to speak over your head just so you're further convincing yourself that you can't take it on yourself. I mean, I, I probably do some DIY that I shouldn't do. Like, I think a lot of people would say you shouldn't do like electric, you shouldn't do gas. I do all those things. Uh, sometimes I like fire, uh, file, file permits for the work that I'm doing even, uh, pretty often. I, I, even if you're doing DIY work, you can often file permits with the town. Um, they'll come out. It's good to have a second set of eyes on the work that you do, especially if you're doing something like gas or, um, or water or electric. And that doesn't mean you can't do it. A permit is not like a reason to not do it. Um, it's just, uh, I don't know, a benefit of doing it because like someone can come like we, I had a, uh, someone come and they said like, um, what electrician did this work? And I'm like, me. And the guy's like, oh, you did a pretty good job. It's like, you know, like having, having someone come by and, and be a double check is, is nice. And that's a, don't start with gas. Don't start with electric, but don't, don't limit yourself either. Like you can get pretty far. Like you said, like you might end up buying a tool to double check your work. Like for example, when I do gas work, I, a normal gas plumber is not going to use a sniffer to be able to figure out whether there's a gas leak. They're going to trust that they know how to do it. However, I'm not a plumber. So when I do it, I want to be safe. So I turn off the main, I turn it back on, I use a sniffer, I get super paranoid, I have uh, the inspector come by to make sure everything's okay. Um, so just kind of know your limits, you know, know, know what you have to do. And honestly, just have a good time. Like I, like we're at the point now where with this stuff where there's some stuff that I don't want to do in my house that I'll have a contractor come by. And I've at, at some points been like, hey, when you get to that part, can I can I join you on the work? Can I like come work with you on this? That's another option. Uh, we had a contractor a while ago who came and did some work at our house. And as he was leaving, I was like, hey, um, do you m have any interest in having me come by and, uh, and go on a couple of jobs with you? And they were like, yeah, that sounds great. So actually, I, I, got a, I worked with this contractor for a while um, and went on jobs with him. I did flooring jobs and siding jobs. Um, if you have an opportunity like that, um, or a contractor that uh, is looking for help, that's always a good way to learn things too. And, and you know, on someone else's time, uh, you can get some extra money. I hadn't even really considered doing that ad hoc. It makes sense if you can shadow somebody that way and if they'll pay you all the better. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to him and he was like, well, you know, just meet me uh, tomorrow morning at this deli uh, and then we'll get breakfast and then we'll go out. So I met him at like 7 a.m. the next morning. I think the first job I went on was a flooring job. We we went into a house, um, tore out a floor, put it back in, and it's amazing because like the like this is another pro for not working with the contractor, but like you are looking at the job, seeing all of the problems with how you did it. When you show the homeowner, or you show even if you do DIY work at your own house, no one's going to see all those problems. Like you're going to see the part of the trim where it doesn't quite hit the mall. No one sees that, or you're going to see. Um, you know, that the paint has a little bit of like brush stroke in it. Do you, like when's the last time that you walked into someone's house and saw those problems, you know? So a lot of times you, you glance right past them. It's like, if a wall is painted, you go, Oh, that's, it's done. Like, so don't be too hard on yourself is, is another, it's another tip. We are all our own worst critic. It's true. Yes. 
Um, and then I've recently uh, been giving a little bit of my DIY work away to contractors so that I can focus more on this um, kind of like general making thing that I've I've got going on that I uh, has been really really fun. So uh, I th- I'm going to describe the what what I I'm going to describe the whole th- the recent thing that happened. So my daughter has this uh, ha- had an expert fair at school, um, and an expert fair is like. It's like a science fair, but you pick a topic. So my my first oldest daughter um, had chosen gymnastics as her topic. So she had this trifold board and there was like, um, this is what uh, gymnastics is. And this is the different moves you can do in gymnastics. So we we traveled to Italy the next year. um, And my daughter is one year behind that daughter, my second daughter. Uh, So we traveled to Italy uh, and we were in um, the part of Italy where the Leaning Tower of Pisa is. So we, we stopped by Pisa for a day or like an hour, which is like all you need, I think, in Pisa. Uh, so we saw the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and my daughter gets back. It's time for her expert fair, and she chooses to do this Leaning Tower of Pisa for her expert fair project. She goes to school, um, says she wants to do the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and she comes home crying. And the reason she's crying is because the kids at school were making fun of her and calling it the Leaning Tower of Pizza. I don't know if that's making fun of her, but like she took it as an insult, so she was super upset that they... Uh, we're calling it the Leaning Tower of Pizza. So she she was like, "Can we uh, like build a Leaning Tower of Pizza? Can we like make the project more impressive so that like they, you know, I can tell them that it's cool or whatever?" So I was like, "Yeah, we'll build like a Leaning Tower of Pizza. We'll we'll work on that together." And then she came home and she was like, "I uh, I told them that we're going to build the Leaning Tower of Pizza, and Leaning Tower of Pizza is going to be like as tall as you." But uh, you know, I wanted to to help her and also like. It sounded fun. So I ended up building this Leaning Tower of Pisa. The Leaning Tower of Pisa is an eight and a half foot tall. And I'm not eight and a half foot tall. But the Leaning Tower of Pisa is eight and a half foot tall. Just to like kind of add a little bit of flair. Um, and we can link pictures to this too. But when just to add a, a little bit of flair, when you hit a button at the bottom of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, it leans over. So it leans to four and a half degrees. Um, and it's like a, like an electronic lean. There's a, a linear actuator underneath the tower that is like a 190 pound linear actuator that lifts the tower uh, into position. So everyone's like, why isn't it leaning? And then you hit the button and it plays a song and it leans. So we built that uh, a little bit together, but honestly, like I did a lot of the work because obviously like it's eight and a half foot tall tower. So we built that together. Um, She kind of like saw the process of how it was built, which I think is super important for kids to like, even if they're not being involved in making the thing to be like, into how it got made to see like what it takes to build something like that. Um, and to, to see most importantly, like we were talking before that, like it's just the collection of pieces, you know, like the leaning tower of Pisa, when you look at it, it looks like it's finished just like the, the wall, the perfectly painted wall or whatever. Really all it is to the maker is like a collection of pieces. Like I know that people see a leaning tower. They don't see that there's a linear actuator underneath. Obviously as the person who made it, the magic's a little bit ruined because I know what's going on. Um, but being able to break problems like that, like that down is super important. How heavy is the piece? It's probably about 150, I would guess. Um, that includes the base and the actuator itself. The actuator is pretty light, but the base is pretty heavy. But it's funny, we brought it there. All the parents are like, what the, what are you doing? Like, why do you have this thing here? And they're like, but then like five minutes later, after they're all like, why do you have this thing? They're all taking pictures with it. Uh, <laughs> like, no other booths had a crowd like we had. I mean, every kid wanted to hit the button. Um, and obviously I'm a software engineer, so I built in like 
I built in debouncing to the button, which uh, is a software term for when you, um, I guess when you hit something a bunch of times, making it so that it does the, you don't want the tower to like try to flip back and forth and back and forth. You want it to just go once. So we have software that does that. Did you have to bring it in a couple of different pieces and then put it together? I hope. <laughs> uh, it's to scale. So I think that works out to something like three feet wide. Um, so we had to go through like a back access door and it had to come in on a, like a dolly in three separate pieces that we put together. Sure. This goes without saying, but you mentioned four degrees. Is that the exact, uh, spec on the leaning tower Pisa? It's not, it's not exactly four degrees, but the, the, the one that we did matches exactly to the real tower. Mm -hmm. What did you do with it after the uh, project was over? That's a great question. Uh, so (laughs) we took the base off of it. We permanently leaned it, um, and then we we put little nets and have the like the cats can uh, can climb up in it. So it, now it's like a cat house. <laughs> Actually, that's a great way to repurpose it. Uh, yeah. A little piece of art plus the cats have a place to hang out. That seems like uh, a two for one. For a while, the the library in town was was trying to they wanted to have it like as a, a piece, but we never, we never ended up working out the details, but they wanted to have it like in the lobby, which maybe, maybe that'll happen. Maybe we'll end up putting it back together. Also, when you mentioned having your kids watch the process, even if they can't complete it, um, a little bit similar vein, something I have earmarked for myself, maybe the next five to 10 years. I'm not super interested in real estate property from the investment standpoint of it, but I really keep considering getting one just as something to walk my kids through a, just even some of the investing piece of it and, you know, sort of a version of owning a business, but B, um, depending on what would come up for things breaking and so on, having them walk through those processes of potentially helping uh, get them corrected and fixed and so on. Cause it certainly is a life skill um, that, as we're talking about, they would need, whether it's when they become a homeowner themselves or um, just being self-sufficient. And again, going back to the problem solving, like you're talking about. I think that's a great idea. And I think also, like I think you alluded to showing them the investment piece and that you can make something like, like that this isn't something reserved for just the people, you know, at the top or whatever, like that you can, you can do this thing um, together and like produce value, you know, like that, that anyone can go do this thing. Um, I think it's an important lesson for kids because I think a lot of times, even with tools, people might look at tools and be like, that's something super interesting to me, but that's reserved only for people that do tools or whatever, you know, like showing them that a house is just like anything else. Um, I think even I fall into this trap sometimes of thinking that I can't do something because I'm not like an expert, but showing them that like everyone starts somewhere and that this is how you learn to do things. Also, like getting some practice in, I think is it's great. Uh, so I have this this truck that I started building, right? And people um, are restoring and people come in and they're like, oh, like, where did you learn about trucks? And I was like, I'm like, I didn't, you know, like, this is it right now. We're doing it. Like, uh, you know, I didn't know what all the parts of a front suspension were. And now I do because like, I took it apart and now we're putting it back together. So you have to um, figure things out as you go. Uh, there's a lot of like knowledge to be had. It's really just like picking the direction you want to go and not bucketing yourself. Um, what you were talking about with the tools at a garage sale. I think that mindset sticks with me for anything car related that stops me from getting too far with it. That like you said, a saw that, you know, can be very dangerous if it's not well-maintained 
that's where my mind goes for a car. But then I take it, unfortunately, in the other direction that like, I don't want to be the one responsible for this thing hurling me down the road 60 miles an hour. And if I missed a piece or missed something else, so that that's where I do definitely get nervous with some of that. But at the same time, really the same rules apply that you're saying for a contractor. Like, you know, there are mechanics, they learned it just like you would learn it. Um, there is plenty of material out there to figure it out, get the right tools, um, you know, be thorough, et cetera, et cetera. And probably you could have the same argument again that you had for the tool and, you know, making sure all the pieces are there and rebuilding. There's a good chance you'll be more meticulous about the final result because you're the one riding in the car. <laughs> you're the one that is going to be the most concerned about the safety for yourself and certainly for your family. So uh, maybe I need it's to. Amazing taking the car apart and just being like, it definitely was not together correctly before I took it apart. You know, like yeah. you're like looking at the manual and you're like, wait a second, there's supposed to be a bolt here and there isn't. You know, like I think you'd be amazed that. Um, not to say, I mean, mechanics do an amazing job and like they are able to work on a wide variety of vehicles very efficiently, but, um, things get missed, you know, like, especially when they don't maybe care as much as you would. Um, the amount of fail safes that exist in a car, especially a car of that age, uh, I'm not saying you can't hurt yourself, but there is a good chance that by the time that you are back on the road in a fashion that could hurt yourself, that you've learned enough, um, by doing that process that it's probably it's probably fairly safe. Also like cars, um, you know, when you're working on a car, one of the first things you learn is that uh, bolts on a car have torque specifications, which is like how tight the bolt is supposed to be. Um, also like if there are very important bolts, they typically, um, there are typically multiple of them in such a way that they, they can fail to each other. Certain situations where something could go super, super bad, like the bolt that holds the wheel on, uh, there are, uh, they're called castle bolts. So they're bolts that have a, a thing called a cotter pin stuck through them so that they can't undo themselves. So I, I like there are fail safes. It's not just like you miss one bolt and you die. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, that's like, I, I went, I think through these, uh, I have this crazy theory on life, but I, I don't know if I should go into my crazy theory, but I think that there is this, uh, there's this thing where first you look at the car and all you can see is a car. So then you're like, well, this is a whole car and now I'm going to get in it and I'm going to push the pedal and it's going to go somewhere. And when it breaks, you're not thinking like, oh, this part of the car broke or this is what the problem is. You're just thinking like, oh, the car broke, you know, like something like, let me bring it to a mechanic. And then you start taking a car apart and you start working on a car and all of a sudden your mind flips in the other direction and you're like, wait a second, this isn't a car. This is just like some bolts, like I'm driving bolts. And like at any point, anything could go wrong. And then through the process of putting it back together, it doesn't quite ever get back to being a car because you can't, you can't unsee the parts, but it does stop being a collection of bolts and it becomes a system. I don't know. Does that make any sense? It does. I think it's the overarching theme that we have for problem solving. And like you said, breaking it down, almost the opposite of what you're talking about with the Leaning Tower Pisa project, where you couldn't get past seeing all the parts because you put it together. It's almost the opposite effect when you aren't the one that put it together, <laughs> that you just see the big final thing. Because at, at first experience of it, you don't know what went into it. Um, but then as you are able to get further and further into it, yeah, it, it breaks down. Um, yeah. I, I mean, like the linear tower piece of like, I, I can't, I can't unknow that there's a linear actuator underneath, but I, 
when it was finished, could step back from it and be like, oh, of course, that's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Like, it's just, <laughs> you know, like, you kind of forget, um, you put pain on things and you forget that, like, the pieces are what make it up. I, I can definitely relate to that. It's funny when you when you start making things, you start DIYing or you start, like, making, you know, objects, um, how much you, like I was saying before, that people come into your house typically won't notice, uh, like, mistakes, But the more you do DIY, the more you will be able to recognize them. And it's not because you're looking at the thing and able to just spot them like your eye is different. It's more that you know know where the seams are, if that makes sense. Like, you know where to look for how things are put together, you know? So, like, now I'm at the – like, when I go to a restaurant and there's, like, a nice-looking table, I'm not – I'm not at the point anymore where I can look at the table and say, like, that's a nice table. I'm always at the point where I'm, like, looking underneath it to be, like – okay, how is this put together? How is it uh, going to be sturdy? Uh, you can have a different appreciation, but the like the magic, it's almost like the magic is ruined, but through the magic, you see the work and the work is almost even more important. I think that is a fair assessment. Um, and I would say similar <laughs> for lucky for us, the house we moved into uh, now uh, just had better workmanship in general. So I can appreciate some of those things. Again, even like the moldings, like like we've hit a couple times are certainly easier even when you have to go fix something because you know uh, it's more predictable what you're going to find, um, which also makes it a little bit easier. Well, maybe moving on to just so we hit all the things I talked about in our intro, some some quick hits for rock climbing. Actually, before we go to there, yeah, I think there are plenty of more things you and I could talk about. So officially open invite <laughs> if you uh, ever are able to come back on and we can continue to hit some of the DIY and whether it's it's home things that, that I focused on, or I would definitely be interested to hear how your um, projects are shaping up. But just to, to, to hit, like I said, we said the rock climbing. So uh, what was your background in getting into that? And then, like I mentioned, I'm curious of your perspective on getting kids into rock climbing, since it seems like my oldest uh, has some interest. Okay, so the rock climbing, my background in it is right after right after college. I went a few times, uh, and then we started going, my wife and I, pretty regularly before we had kids. And then when we had our, our first, when she was about three years old, um, and I, at this point, I was still going like, in the mornings I was going climbing, I had like a group of friends that I would climb with. But when she was about three years old, we started her, uh, which is super, super young. Like, I think that's probably like the minimum age at the gym that we were at at the time. um, That was the earliest that you could go. So I think probably three years old, like you have to be able-bodied three-year-old. I know that like my kids are all kind of different levels of like physically aware um, at different ages. Um, but you could, that's like kind of the earliest you can start most gyms, like the gym that I go to now, um, doesn't start kids until they're five years old. Uh, these are indoor bouldering gyms. And then we also climb outdoors sometimes. So we'll go somewhere for us. The closest place, um, is the gunks, which is, um, which is in New York. So we will go there. Uh, and obviously they can climb at any age then. So we had, uh, uh, on a recent trip or maybe a, a couple of years ago, we had our, uh, our son, who I guess would have been like one and a half or two uh, on a top rope. Obviously, he's not like going to the top. And he's if he gets scared, you want to take him down immediately. And you want to be super duper safe. And you want to have a helmet on him. But I think climbing is just such a good... Um, there are so many sports that you can do. You can kind of like hand someone a victory for. Or you can say like, you were part of a team and your team did this thing. Or here, like I'm going to tell you that you're good at this, but kind of like let you let you learn by by telling you that you're doing well. Rock climbing 
for me is the kind of thing where like you will do it. Uh, kids at all different ages can do it. Adults can do it um, at all different ages. And when you do it, you you are the reason that you got to the top of the wall. Like you um, climbed this thing and that sense of accomplishment for me is addictive. And I think like for kids is such a great feeling to have that they can, they can climb to the wall and know that the only thing that got them up there was their arms and legs. Also, also for kids, like, I mean, the kids of mine that have been really into climbing spent a lot of time, like, climbing on chairs in super dangerous ways. That resonates with me as well. And that's a good point about whether or not they succeeded or not in the activity, because even with your standard team sports, uh, soccer, baseball, basketball, you could argue that even if they their team doesn't win, they could well, blame a teammate <laughs> potentially, or even blame a referee uh, to say, oh, well, it's that person's fault because I didn't do whatever thing. And then obviously other uh, individual sports come to mind where you have judges, whether it's dancing or uh, skating or things like that. But yeah, to your point with rock climbing, there's not someone like telling you that you didn't do well or someone that is like, it, it's hard to even compare yourself for someone else in rock climbing because like you're, Obviously, you can see if they climbed and you didn't, but you can't compare your feeling of what your body's doing to what they're doing. So in that way, rock climbing is also very progressive, meaning like that it can get as hard as you want it to be able to get. So I think for kids, that's also super important that there's not there's not tiers that you have to meet in order to play this game well. You don't have to like be able to jump up to the next tier. You don't have to be able to go um, you know, to the next level or beat this like other team that might be like some unknown level of good or like there's no there's not luck involved like it's it's like slow preparation and kind of get as much out of it as you want well it's an interesting one for me because i've gone rock climbing maybe three four times at some local places while i was growing up and i always had a really good time just wasn't something that my family as a whole was into and I didn't really know, I guess, where to get started or even that it was a thing to go on a consistent basis or even have competitions, which I just recently learned part of what you can do with rock climbing. The way we even tried it for my son is it was a Groupon <laughs> for a local place. And, you know, I think it was like three or four climbs, something like that for a discounted rate. And he really took to it. And I'm like, hmm, you know, yeah, I always had a good experience with it before. Obviously, and he's young enough that we've got plenty of time for him to figure out what he's into. But um, it, it's interesting that he's taken to it a little bit more than at least the concept of some of the other team sports. So um, it's definitely something that I'm interested in exploring and, you know, is an option that I hadn't really considered before. Like you say, not necessarily a knock on other activities that are out there, but I think it's worth acknowledging for somebody like myself that didn't really think of it as an option that, hey, it is an option of a particular activity um, that your kids can get into. Yeah. And one that you can spend the day outside with your family. Um, you can go right. hike, you can take some lunch. I think it's just all around is perfect. And for kids my age, the local place here has a sign that says, we make kids tired. <laughs> so, <laughs> Definitely true. So like, for example, baseball was what I always grew up with. And I'm like, well, yeah, it'd be fun to share baseball with my kids. But they're not burning off a lot of their energy sitting in the outfield waiting for the other kids to hit the <laughs> ball. It's like, let's get them into something. I used to play baseball and like stand 
the the opposite way and like play with yeah. butterflies like definitely not <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like it's it sort of stands alone as a particular sport either you love it or you hate it and uh you definitely can tell back to like we said with music you can tell the kids that that's what their families just do and so they got signed up versus the ones that maybe chose to do it themselves well i do want to go ahead and wrap us up. Like I said, there are a lot of things that you brought up that I would love to have some follow-up conversations on. So we can uh, chat offline and see if we can um, maybe even schedule uh, another episode to go through some more, you know, suburban life things and um, the, the DIY projects for sure. But I'd love to, to spend some more time about making. I could talk about travel for a bit too. That'd be really fun. That'd be perfect. Um, before we go, do you want to go ahead and give contact info or any projects that make sense for you to point people in your direction? Pretty much everything is, you can follow me on uh, Twitter or Instagram. I'm at C John run S E E J O H N R U N. Perfect. Well, John, again, I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. Hopefully you did. I did. And we will be in touch. Okay. Talk soon. For definitions and explanations of some of the tools discussed in this episode, go to SuburbanFolk.com for examples and recommendations of tools that you can purchase. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network. Hi there, it's Mo. And Chip. And we're the hosts of the Deep Dark Truth podcast. An allegedly hilarious podcast that dives into your favorite conspiracies, mysteries, and bizarre true crimes. We investigate cases like proven conspiracies, rituals, and the cryptid dating scene. Because local cryptids want to meet you. Listeners can also submit their own experiences and might find themselves featured on future episodes. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast you're listening to right now. And keep searching for the deep, dark truth. I hate when you do that. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly shows, please hit the subscribe button. Thank you.